I'm Mike Weir, Chief Revenue Officer at G2, the world's largest and most trusted software marketplace. And welcome to Go to Market Innovators, the series where we sit down with B2B revenue and marketing leaders to learn about the successes they've had, the challenges they've faced, and how they've used technology to create an aligned sales and marketing organization to drive their businesses forward. Welcome again. Today, we're joined on Go-To-Market Innovators with Eli Rubel, who's the CEO of Mattermade and advisor to a number of companies, including Loom and Dropbox. At Mattermade, Eli and his team are helping some of the fastest growing tech companies hit their audacious revenue goals even faster. Welcome, Eli. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, Eli, we've actually worked together before. Uh, we've talked about mutual clients. Uh, you've even helped out G2 at times. So very, very excited to be able to get some of your insights around sales and marketing alignment. I know this has been very near and dear to your heart for a long time because that matter made you've actually built out a new model, built out a new thing that many folks are getting value from that's been called the demand efficiency benchmark. And as I understand it from our previous conversations, this has really served as a framework that's helped marketers, sales, and overall go-to-market professionals discover where they're doing well and where they could do better. So can you talk, us a bit, talk to us a bit about what was the impetus for this and you know, a little bit of, of what it is? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Happy to unpack that. Um, you know, this all stemmed from, actually, this is kind of a funny behind-the-scenes story. So this all stemmed from a frustration that I think we shared equally with our own clients, which was nobody likes the discovery process. When you're bringing on a team of consultants or agency um, and you use the word discovery, even though both teams know it's necessary to like, you know, deeply understand the business before making suggestions, nobody's excited for discovery. And at the same time, it's this necessary evil that, you know, we had to spend sometimes two weeks to a month just really getting in there. After a certain point, I realized though that, you know, I had been training these folks on my team to conduct a really specific discovery process that at the end of the day, the biggest barrier to getting this done was just getting executives time, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't it, like the, the questions we asked were all the same. We just had to find the right executives to give us those answers and then run them through our model and our experience to determine where are the gaps, where are they messing up, where, where is their opportunity and leverage here. Um, and so when I had that realization that one, nobody likes to do this, two, we still have to do it <laughs> regardless, and three, if I can get the answer some other way, I could shortcut to finding those pieces of leverage within their business, we, we decided to create a framework um, and, and shortcut all of that. And so we looked back on five years worth of data across helping scale, you know, some of the best known companies out there, G2 included, and um, really looked through to figure out like what, what are absolutely critical questions and areas that are often ignored by a lot of go-to-market teams. Uh, the result was the go-to-market or the, uh, the demand efficiency framework that we built. And rather than keeping it just as an internal tool to avoid spending a bunch of time on discovery, 
we decided to open source it because at the end of the day, I think there are a lot of go-to-market teams right now, given the market conditions who are doing, having to do a lot more with a lot less, right? Whether it's fewer people on their team, less budget, they're, they're still responsible for pipeline goals. And so we felt that the insights that we could share through this framework, if we open sourced it completely, would just be a good way to pay it forward to the industry. So TLDR, it's a five to seven minute evaluation that companies can take. And we've had leaders at, all the way up to the you know, C-level at companies like Box, uh, Mutiny, Mad Kudu, Demand Base, list mm -hmm. goes on, who have completed this evaluation for themselves. That's awesome. I understand one of the byproducts of this was a North Star, met, uh, North Star metric. Can, you, can yeah. you share that one before we go a little bit deeper there? Definitely. Right. So traditionally, when you think about marketing, a lot of the time it feels like a black box to non-marketers um, or to non-marketing leaders even. So you're sitting in this room and essentially the CMO or whatever marketing leader is there has to earn the, the trust to and, and really buy themselves the space to invest in these programs that they know are going to deliver results based on their experience. And a lot of non-marketing execs have a hard time with that, which makes perfect sense, right? It's like a tough pill to swallow when you're relying on them to do your job well. And this is the kind of inherent sales and marketing tango that we do. Um, and so we were thinking through, you know, everybody right now is obsessed with reducing costs to acquire as they should be, but there's no, there's been no leading indicator for marketing attributed cost to acquire reduction until now. And so the, the demand efficiency framework actually created a metric that marketers and non-marketing executives could align around where they can show, Hey, if we work on X, Y, and Z initiatives based on this leading indicator, we can tell ahead of time that we will reduce cost to acquire before it trickles down to the bottom line. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a big aha moment, I think for us and for the industry. Yeah, that's powerful because you're right. I, I have a unique background. I was a marketer. Now I'm in sales leadership role. So I've sat on both sides of that fence and I've felt that scrutiny. I felt that lack of trust when I was sitting in marketing. And then now I also do empathize at times with the black box where I'm like, oh, what's going on? Like, what is this stuff? What are you spending this money on? So I love the fact that you are now building towards what's one of the most important ingredients in sales and marketing alignment, which is common goals, shared objectives. And so I love the fact that you're, you're now creating a North, Store, a North Star metric that others can rally around in sales and marketing alignment. I'm sure there were a tremendous amount of additional trends and insights that have come out of all of the responses that you've received through this. So let's explore that. What are some of the insights that you're gathering from the CMOs who have completed this to see like, what are the emerging trends? What are the high performing companies doing exceptionally well that we can all learn from? Yeah. So as you can imagine, this question can be answered. I almost think of it like a matrix grid where it's segmented by stage. It's segmented by you know, vertical, horizontal, that sort of a thing. So I'll have to give you some 
kind of generalized answers here, just as far as like directional patterns, yep. um, because it'll, it would change dramatically if we said we're only talking about series B and C companies versus only public companies, what, ha what have you. Um, directionally, the companies who are doing the best have figured out a really good way to align sales and marketing, which doesn't come as a surprise. But I think the, the nugget here is that companies who self-assess as saying they have solved sales and marketing alignment haven't in many <laughs> cases. And there are many simple things that they can and should be doing um, that they are not, even though they feel at least at the like, check the box, how would you describe the relationship between sales and marketing, that that's a solved problem. And obviously when that isn't a solved problem, there's a ton of revenue leakage that can occur. If you were to look at those earlier stage, because I, I, I love the idea when we think about just giving folks that are listening, very practical advice. Yep. Like, What are the best earlier stage startups doing that everybody should replicate? And then we can pivot over to what some of the biggest companies are that have more resources or the perception maybe of having more resources and more budget. But like, you know, let, let's dig into that of what are the early stage folks doing really well that you wish every company would do? Yeah, I, I think um, there are two things that early stage companies can do and the ones who are doing just accelerate light years faster um, than their peers. The first is around use case and persona driven messaging mm. and experimentation. Okay. Uh, I would say that the standard, call it before series, once a company is getting ready for series C, um, and obviously these stages are constantly changing and definition of them, um, that might just be a, a loose guidance there. But a lot of these companies will just come up with generalized messaging that all the execs feel like, yeah, based on how, you know, what we're seeing in sales conversations, this feels about right. And they'll make those decisions from executive gut as opposed to market experimentation. Mm. Um, and then they won't revisit that until they get to a stage when it's already too late. I mean, they, they obviously can implement change, but it's too late as far as like, there's tons of opportunity that they've just left on the table and not having segmented by their messaging, by use case, by persona, um, and arriving at those des th those decisions through in-market testing. Executive gut shouldn't lead messaging decisions. Nobody should care what those, what the market yields. It should just be what converts best. Um, yeah. that's still directionally aligned with the product offering. Thanks. I like that. So the folks that are really testing, really learning and using more of that data driven assessment to guide messaging, positioning, campaign focus, that makes total sense, right? So let's, let's assume some of the big players who have completed the, the benchmark also fall into that camp. Are there additional things that those larger companies, those enterprise size companies that they're doing uniquely that others can learn from, especially to your point, I think it's great. Like as you get C to D and you're thinking about becoming a publicly traded company, you know, you got to start thinking bigger and planning two, three years out. So yeah, what can we, what can we learn from those folks? Middle of funnel, the yeah. later stage companies, um, whether it's getting ready for IPO or already public tend to do very well, or at least compared to their early stage peers, um, 
do very well in the sophistication in the middle of their funnel or middle of the buying journey. Uh, I think a lot of early stage companies are so focused on, we need to drive top of pipeline. We need to just close these deals that in that excitement, they forget about all of the prospects that they've brought into their universe that for whatever reason, weren't ready to buy at the time. And they just kind of get cast aside. And maybe there are some reps who are doing their best to recycle these things, but at best, at the earlier stages, they are, it's a manual effort and there aren't any evergreen programs or automations running to systematically recycle. Um, and, and it can be more than just, I mean, there's a lot of, you can have tier to tier upsells, you can have, you know, post-close expansion, like land and expand programs. You can have, um, you know, trials that didn't convert. There are so many different layers and ways to slice and dice that middle of funnel where you could really leverage a ton of automation and back to this word about, you know, or the word I used in the beginning around creating leverage. It's like whenever you can create programs that are just running while your team sleeps and trying to tee things up for you and bring people further along in the journey without being forceful, without, you know, ruining an opportunity. And in doing so back to sales and marketing alignment, really, truly tee up multi-threaded deals for sales like that. That's, a winning space to invest time and middle of funnel inherently always costs less than driving more top of funnel in many times. In many cases, it only costs the time and effort of your team to get mm -hmm. creative, to come up with the programs and to implement them. Yeah. And there was an aspect of what you just shared there that it falls in line with a lot of the conversations that we have on this program is the technology, right? And, and this is, I think to me, this is one of the big unlocks. Sales and marketing alignment has gotten materially better because it's been a focus. But I think technology has been that glue that's actually made it work better. When you think about automation, when you think about how technology is enabling, you know, the marketers to be more effective, to have marketing and sales more aligned, you know, is there anything that stands out? Is there any types of tools that, that you use today that your team uses? that others should be considering within their tech stack to, to be more effective and efficient. Yeah. I mean, I, when it comes to technology, I am a, I'm definitely a minimalist. I don't, I like keeping things simple. So it's more so to me about being really well organized in whatever your mm -hmm. map is and making sure that all the leaders in the room trust the data, both in the marketing platform and the sales platform and ensuring that bi-directionally, both platforms are always keeping each other up to date, paired with really great offline practices, right? Like making sure that you have standing weekly touch points between the marketing team and the sales team, the marketing team and the SDR team, so that that feedback can then be captured and memorialized um, and ultimately operationalized. I think that there are, you know, certainly new and emerging platforms or tools, depending on your selling motion that are becoming very compelling. I'm thinking of companies like Endgame. If you have a you know a product-led motion, mm. being able to surface in real time product usage data to the sales and marketing orgs such that they can action whether automated or not, um, and and start from a very strong place of personalization um, within those accounts. So, I mean, there there are probably many more examples of of the end games of the world, but to keep things simple, I'd say that's that's kind of the the general stack hygiene that I think through. Yeah, I can I can confirm it. 
with the proliferation of software vendors and categories within the G2 universe, like there's a lot of options out there. Minimalist is not a bad thing at all, right? Because this is stuff that has to work really well together. And I think that becomes a great pivot to the second part of this coin, which is the folks that are doing it exceptionally well to learn from, love that. There's still struggles. There's still challenges. There's still probably a lot of failures that are going on based on what you're learning within the benchmark data. Can you share a little bit about where are organizations still struggling today that we all just need to be more mindful of and work on fixing? Yeah. So th this one is fun for me because this is really like the, uh, the basis of the framework, the efficiency framework. And this is the thing that almost every single marketing leader who gets on with me after having taken the evaluation calls out, which is it, a, it's very thorough. But B, it's based on this premise that if we zoom out for a second and think about how the typical marketing talking heads in industry talk about marketing, it's a lot of demand capture, demand creation, a lot of focusing on the, the channels to drive excellence. Like none of that is wrong by any means. But what happens is that because the conversation is focused there, there are a lot of smaller spaces. Uh, I call them surfaces, right? a lot of small surfaces along the buying journey that get ignored. Why do they get ignored? They get ignored because they're not the big obvious levers. They're not the thing that you're putting dollars into every single day. And so they don't feel like they're worth investing a week's worth of your time, two weeks worth of your time to go from, Hey, mm -hmm. this is a it's like, they all feel like nice to haves, not need to haves. But if you think that there are like, 80 plus of these surfaces that exist in the buying journey. And then you imagine that if you went from either not having it to having it or having it implemented kind of bleh to excellence, that could be in some cases, maybe really small, like 0.5 to 1% increase in conversion rates. But in other places, maybe it's like a three to 5% increase in conversion rate. Oh. And if you have 80 of these things, what is that? And you, and you systematically do dedicate time yeah. to them. What does that do to your overall conversion, right? Overall spend, overall cost to acquire a customer. It's, it's profound. And so back to your original question of like, what are companies not doing? A, a perfect score in the demand efficiency evaluation is something like 200 and there's 268 points available. Wow. And I think the highest score so far is 147. And I mean, there are some great companies who have evaluated. So this isn't to say that, you know, that, that just goes to illustrate that, you know, I, I get on with, and I'm not, I won't name any specific names, but, but a handful of incredibly talented, well-regarded keynote level marketers out there at the hottest, you know, pre-IPO companies will get on and go, man, like I printed out the results of this because there are so many of these little little areas or surfaces that have been on my nice to have list and just have never gotten the love they deserve. And when I see them all laid out or when I was asked all these questions back to back, I realized how much leverage there is if I do start mm -hmm. investing in those. So that was kind of a, a macro thematic way to answer your question. Yeah. It and let me guess at a couple of those surfaces and maybe I'm off base. So 
Let's go. Give me back on track if so. Sure. Some of what you shared in, in, in just talking through what's working really well. What are the best doing exceptionally well? There were a couple hints of where people are struggling, where companies are struggling within there. And I think one that, that really resonated with me because this was a key focus when I was a marketer was the feedback loops and the learning and actually talking to each other to learn what's working, what's not working, why is that? Because to me, the surface is there's a drop-off in conversion, typically, just at the point of whether or not a lead is going to be actioned by somebody in BDR world or sales world. And then there's another drop-off in if they actually create an opportunity. Right. And those are usually very material drop-offs. So those that closed loop feedback process feels like a surface to me. Would you agree? Is is that one we should dive into a little bit more? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, there there are two kind of opportunities within this the the closed loop feedback system you're talking about. Um Usually teams approach this from one or the other, but I think often it's ignored and, and they don't think about both. So the first opportunity here in having a strong feedback loop and, and not just strong because strong is too like soft, what I, like actually having a standard operating procedure that both teams have agreed upon. There's reoccurring meetings on the calendar and there's an understanding of how systems are going to be updated outside of the, that like meeting time. Um, the first is the more obvious side, which is like personalization, right? If you are throwing leads over the fence, air quotes, <laughs> strong air quotes there, um, you're, you're not teeing up your sales counterpart or your SDR counterpart with any of the goodness or any of the dollars invested to get that person to where they were when they were thrown over the fence, right? Like yep. people could come in through a variety of different means with a variety of different interests and they could be at a variety of different stages of readiness or, or different types of conversations that would make sense for them. And a lot of the time teams just don't take that extra step to make sure that that's communicated so that the, com the conversation can start where it left off. That's kind of the more obvious piece. The less obvious piece that is still obvious, but people just for whatever reason don't prioritize it is around learnings for marketing. Right. It's mm -hmm. like the first one is how can, how can marketing help sales win more? But the second is how can sales help marketing be more creative and engaging through their, through their programs? Uh, they're talking to these people all day long. They, they're talking to the prospects. They're talking to the customers. The best marketing ideas come from those conversations. The best changes to the buying journey come from those conversations. And if you don't have that, connective tissue between those two groups and, and have it really well-defined and routine marketing is going to go off into their creative marketing land and they might listen to some recorded calls and they, you know, are going to come up with like riffs on their art on, on their existing roadmap. But it, it's like the, the gems of those net new ideas or the creative sparks that can come from a pissed off SDR because a sales call went really poorly or a really fired up SDR because a sales call went really, really well. That's where those great ideas come from, where you can really, really take a dollar and put it into the system. And there's a ton more leverage because it's just outside of the box or, or incredibly well aligned with the ICP. Yeah. I, it resonates. It makes sense. Um, 
when I even just think about the practical side of, of what we're doing in our own environment, there's a lot of, there are a lot of great tools on the intelligence side of the house, whether, whether it's competitive intelligence, customer intelligence, NPS tools, there's so many data-driven signals and even uh, qualitative signals that come from a lot of the tools that, that we use right now, but it is that conversation. And I don't, I don't want somebody to misinterpret a singular example as the new rule. It's like, whoa, that's, that's an outlier. Like, we're, you know, we're talking to thousands of people today, like that's an outlier. So I, I think you're spot on that the conversation and the bi-directional learning can be really huge. Seeing it myself improve my narrative every single day by talking to our marketing team about what's resonating, what are people engaging with the most and, you know, always appreciate when we can share our own insights back as well. We're coming up on time. And so I just really appreciate how much I've learned through the conversation um, and how much I now want to have my marketing leadership team and myself fill out the benchmark. Um, if we haven't done it or if we do a refresh, I think we're going to find a lot of surfaces where we can create improvements ourselves. So thank you again for you know, pioneering this and creating the tool that's going to help so many. As we wrap, I'd be curious, any final thoughts? Any final set of advice that you would give to listeners about from a marketing side or a sales side, what could we be doing to really optimize our go-to-markets and deliver more impact to deliver a better customer experience overall? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that the the evaluation itself will give you, will give anyone that advice as like in, a, in the most straightforward sense. Um as it's possible. Uh, so any blanket advice would just be not personalized enough for everyone's situation. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when, it, when people do go and take, check out the evaluation, just answer the questions, honestly, right? Like the nobody's, nobody's looking over your shoulder. This is purely for your own benefit. And so, you know, I think some people, when they know that they're going to see a score for themselves at the end, they get a little bit nervous, um, and try to like, rose colored glasses, but I would say really go in there either, um, by yourself or with your leadership team or have multiple people from your leadership team, take the evaluation, just see how your answers differ. Um, because that's the nuggets that it's going to spit out for you, uh, could be really profound and give you a, a strong sense for directionally. Are you on the right track for reducing cost to acquire and driving predictable pipeline or are there adjustments that you could make? Love that. Uh, having multiple people fill it out and seeing where there's differences makes all the sense in the world. Eli, thank you again for joining us today, sharing more about the benchmark and sharing more of your expertise. Have a great one. Thank Absolutely. you, everybody. Thank you.